Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, pressure at the petrol pumps as the government here tries its best to tackle rising fuel prices and deal with the supply issues. We're going to talk to an expert about this week's developments and examine if there's a real prospect of fuel rationing on the horizon in Ireland. And as war returns to Europe, we're going to look back at the conflict that was closer to home. A new book is out this week. It's called Reporting the Troubles and it documents stories from journalists who are on the front line of the conflict in Northern Ireland. And finally, other voices 20 years on how a humble music festival in Dingle has become a place of pilgrimage for some of the world's leading artists. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. But first up today, recent days have seen our government try to tackle the rising energy prices issue. And in the US, we've obviously seen the ban on imports from Russia. The UK government have said that they're going to revisit the North Sea for exploration, perhaps to find more gas and oil. And in Germany, the government there has revisited its position on LNG and maybe even nuclear power. So to explain to us what all of this means for Ireland, we're joined now by Mwern Lynch from the Economic and Social Research Institute. Mwern, thank you so so much for joining us on News Talk today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Now, the invasion uh, of the Ukraine by Russia has certainly shown us all two things. Firstly, how much we all rely on fossil fuels. And secondly, how quickly they can now be used as political leverage. Can you just give us an overview of what the actions of the US and the UK ban might mean for us here in Europe? So what we see is there's no direct pipeline, obviously, from Russia to the U.S. And there's none, no direct pipeline from Russia to the U.K. either, but they are connected via the European gas network. However, oil, of course, doesn't come through pipelines for the most part. It comes in barrels, on ships, on trucks. Um, and what it essentially means in order for those large users of energy to cut themselves off from a significant supplier of fossil fuels is that's going to have an impact on prices. Mm. So like anything else, the price of energy is determined by supply and demand. And if you have large demand centers who are really restricting the supply available to them, then that means they're going to be looking to replace that from other sources, which means that the price from other sources is going to go up. And energy prices, particularly oil, but also gas, tend to be set at more or less global level. And so what it means is there's just going to be further knock-on for countries such as Ireland in terms of the price that we face on fossil fuels. Okay, so that's how it's going to affect Europe. Um, Can you explain to us how it will affect Russia? So we kind of understand what the economic sanctions are designed to do to Russia, but what is this designed to do to Russia? To some extent, you could say that it's somewhat symbolic Mm. in that we haven't seen the likes of Germany saying that they're not going to use Russian fossil fuels anymore yet. Um, And I suppose you could say that that's probably due to the fact that it would be an awful lot harder for Germany to stop using fossil fuels altogether from Russia because Germany gets so much more of their gas in particular from Russia compared to 
uh, Great Britain and America. And what that means is that the knock-on implications for Russia right now, they'll be bad, but they won't be so huge. I mean, they're still selling an awful lot of gas to an awful lot of countries, um, including European countries. But it certainly is the case that when you have so much of your revenue coming from the sale of something like energy, to have countries essentially cutting them off from that is going to have a knock-on impact for sure. And as you say, it is, it's is—it's a lot to do with symbolism, isn't it? Because last week, we just wouldn't have thought that even the US has only got 7% of its um, oil imports come from Russia. We, we wouldn't have thought this was possible then. No, and I mean, the funny thing is I've been in energy research since about 2009 and this is one of the things that has always been mentioned. Mm. We talk about the energy trilemma of trying to ensure uh, sustainability as well as security and as well as competitiveness. So you want energy that is secure and environmentally friendly and cheap. Um, And for the most part, you can pick at most two of those three. And whenever people talk about security, the main thing they've talked about is, oh, well, what if Russia turns off the gas one day? (laughs) But it's only ever been a what if. And a a very distant what if, really, before this. Exactly. So it's what we call a kind of uh, low probability, high impact event. Mm. So we know that normal fluctuations in the price of fossil fuel is very normal. We know that normal fluctuations in the supply of the likes of wind and solar are very normal. But the massive shock to fossil fuel supplies from the likes of Russia was always a very low probability event. And yet we knew that if it happened, there would be massive impact. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. Anyone who's filled up their car in the last week or two will be able to tell you the massive impact that it's having. And indeed, people who are seeing their electricity and their gas and their oil bills will also be able to tell you, wow, this is having a big impact. So looking at what the US and the UK have done this week, the EU didn't move quite so far, did they? Well, I would say certainly there would be a much larger impact on the EU and on EU countries if the EU as a whole were to decide to ban the import of Russian fossil fuels. Mm. So that could certainly be part of the motivator there. There's also the fact that it seems that in general, throughout this crisis, Europe has wanted to move as one Mm. and to implement sanctions as one. And it takes longer to coordinate across 27 different states than it does for the US or the UK to do something unilaterally. However, it certainly is the fact, or it certainly is the case that we can't just go cutting off our energy supplies at the drop of a hat, even though in the UK they get relatively little of their energy from Russia, they're still saying that they're going to wait until the end of 2022 to stop using Russian fossil fuels. And so if you look at the likes of Germany or the likes of Poland or one of these countries that gets a huge amount of its energy from Russia, it's just not really feasible, I think, for them to be able to replace such a huge chunk of their energy demand at short notice. Okay, so can we just turn to Ireland for a second? We import 100% of all the oil that we use here and 70% of our gas, but just let's split the two of them up for for a moment. Um, Russia is the second largest supplier to Ireland of oil products after the UK. I think we get about 15% of our imported products from them. Just how vulnerable are we if there is an interruption to the supply from Russia? Um, So we like to talk about two different types of security. There's physical security and price security. So physical security is, do you have the actual molecules of gas or oil 
that you need to burn. Mm. And then price security is, okay, you might have access to all of the oil and gas that you need, but what price are you paying for it? So when it comes to physical security, if there was an interruption to oil supplies, as you say, we do get some oil directly from Russia. I don't think we'll get to the point where the pumps run dry, but it would certainly be the case that prices would be very much affected. In terms of gas, we don't get any molecules of gas directly from a pipeline from Russia because we only have one gas pipeline and it goes to Great Britain. And Great Britain, in turn, gets very little of their gas from Russia. However, it is the case that any of these big changes in fossil fuel demand and supply have an impact on prices across Europe and indeed worldwide. So on the physical side of things, we're not necessarily vulnerable Mm. unless there's a massive crisis. But on the price side of things, we certainly are vulnerable. There's also the case that we have intergovernmental agreements in place um, at European level and also with the UK, and they survived Brexit, around sharing of fossil fuel supplies, gas supplies and the like. And what this means is that if there is a physical security issue, we have arrangements in place that we will actually share what gas that we have equally. And this is in order to prevent one country sort of hoarding all of the gas. Mm. So if there was a crisis where Russia just turned off the pipe, we can't just say, okay, well, look, everything's rosy for us. We get our gas from Great Britain and they get their gas from Norway. So it's all fine because we actually have agreements in place to share what gas we have equally. So it is the case that if there was uh, an actual physical interruption to supply from Russia, it would affect us both in terms of the physical quantities of energy that we use and certainly in terms of the price that we pay for them. But just in relation to the gas that we're importing from the UK and they themselves are now a net importer of gas, do you ever envisage us being kind of the last thing that the UK consider if their own supplies are compromised? Well, we have intergovernmental agreements in place in order to guard against that. And then there is also the fact that we only have one pipeline to Great Britain and it actually lands in Northern Ireland. So the entire Irish gas grid is supplied from Great Britain via the north. So on a technical level, it's not really possible for them to cut off gas supplies to us without also cutting off gas supplies to the north. And then on a legal level, there are agreements in place to prevent exactly this. And don't forget, it works both ways. If something were to happen in Norway, then we would have to share our gas supplies from Carib with Britain. So these agreements are in place in order to protect everybody. So just I wanted to touch on one issue which is slightly different but it's about storage. So um, gas storage in particular. Ireland is one of only a few member states that hasn't any gas storage. Do you think that this is something the Irish government should be looking at now uh, especially because the EU is as we saw this week uh, encouraging a more strategic approach to actually having supplies as opposed to you know depending on the vagaries of of countries like Russia? Yeah, so gas storage is, well, energy storage is something that's mandated at EU level where every country needs to have a certain amount of fossil fuel stores uh, in their country. Um, An awful lot of the stores, or they have to have fossil fuel stores within the EU. And an awful lot of the Irish stores were actually in the north. So Brexit kind of upset that a bit in that, okay, well, uh, do they count? Or once Brexit happens, 
do we have to build new gas stores in the Republic? Um, one of the things that we do have in place is that some of our gas-fired electricity generators can also run off diesel. And we do require them to have a certain amount of diesel storage on site so that in the event of a gas shortage, we can still generate electricity from diesel. However, that storage tends to be very short term. When, it, when we're talking about medium to long term energy security, certainly more gas storage could help, but it's not really a medium or a long term solution. Another thing that we could do to diversify our supply, obviously, would be to build an LNG terminal because then you can import LNG from anywhere in the world that exports LNG, which would vastly increase our supply. But then the question on that is, but what about our climate goals? And would it make sense to invest in an LNG terminal at this point, which will be obsolete in a few decades, and or this, which this, should this, be obsolete this, in a few decades if, we want, if we're serious about getting to net zero by 2050? I just want yeah. to ask you one final question, which is around rationing. There's a lot of discussion about that. Uh, and we saw the government say this week that rationing gas and oil is, is unlikely. What do you think? So I suppose just to explain the economic rationale for rationing, because sometimes people kind of forget how simple it is in some ways. As I said at the beginning of this, every single good, the price of every good responds to changes in supply and demand. And when you get squeezes in supply, that means the price goes up. And the the reason for rationing is if you simply allow prices to go up and up and up as a natural response to restrictions in supply, then that means that only richer and richer and richer people can afford whatever it is. And, you know, we wouldn't necessarily get upset if the price of a luxury good went really high. But when it's the price of something like food or energy or something we rely on, at that point, that's when rationing comes into play. Now, the reason for rationing rather than simply imposing a price cap is because if the problem is lack of supply, then regulating prices won't actually fix the problem. Mm. If you only have a limited supply of whatever it is, then the fairest way in some ways to ensure that what supply we do have gets distributed equally is by taking it out of the market's hands, not just letting the market clear at a very high price, and instead regulating the quantity that people can consume um, or that people can purchase because it also prevents hoarding. And for something like energy, it's actually possible to just go and fill up a big tank of diesel and keep it in your back garden if and when you need it. Uh, I think we're not there yet when it comes to rationing. Um, Gas is also difficult to store. So for that reason, the idea of somebody hoarding gas is less of a concern than maybe hoarding oil or indeed solid fuel. But I think we would actually need to see Russia retaliating to the sanctions by actually turning off the gas supply or by actually stopping shipping of oil before that necessarily became an issue. Because one of the things we have to acknowledge as well is that countries that are moving away from Russian fossil fuel usage they are exploring alternative options such as domestic production or or other markets. Now, I mean, you can argue the toss about whether that's good from a climate perspective or from an economic perspective. It's being done for political reasons. 
But it does mean that we're not going to necessarily see no replacement to the, the fossil fuels that are currently being provided by Russia. So I think it's, we're not at the point yet where we're talking about rationing. We need something else big to happen before we went down that route. So um, it, it goes back to that question about banning um, imports on gas or oil and whether or not you're doing and implementing policies which, ha- yes, have an effect on Russia, but actually damage our own economies and our own societies at the same time. It's, it's, it's back to that question, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the other big laws of economics, which always holds, is trade can make everybody better off. Um, But the flip side of that coin is that lack of trade can make everybody worse off. Mm. Um, And it certainly has been acknowledged from the start that imposing sanctions on Russia won't just hurt Russia. Uh, um, And yet it's it's a policy decision as to whether or not that's a, a price we're willing to pay. Well, there's absolutely no doubt that this is a story we'll be coming back to in the weeks and months ahead. But for now, Mirren, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. No problem. That was Mirren Lynch from the ESRI. Walsha Arash Gun News Talk, Shoei Mandy Johnston. Now, in a follow-up to their landmark first book, Reporting the Troubles, Derek Henderson and Ivan Little have gathered together some news stories from 70 journalists who have worked in the Northern Ireland environment during the Troubles. And their second book also includes contributions from a new generation of journalists who've covered the post-Friday agreement period. I'm joined on the line now by Derek Henderson, who's a journalist and a former editor of the Press Association Ireland, and he's co-author of this book, Reporting the troubles too. Derek, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us today. Not at all, Mandy. Good to talk to you. Derek, can we start by going back to your first book, the original idea reporting the troubles. Where did that idea come from and was the book itself a success? Well, we decided in 2016, Ivan Little and myself, uh, to do this book. And actually it was prompted not by the two of us, it was actually my son, uh, Derek Jr., um, he suggested the idea. Um, you know, he was in a, he, he grew up in a house where, where his father was largely absent. I mean, you know, working during the height of the troubles, um, he was away an awful lot. If he wasn't in Dublin or London or Washington or somewhere else, he was you know away in stories. I remember in nineteen ninety eighty eight, leaving the house and dad coming home for three weeks. So I was out in Gibraltar. And, you know, so it was never really in the house. You know, there was never any bedtime stories. His father was a, he was a, you know, journalist back then, made for um, uh, lousy fathers and hopeless husbands because they were never there. They were always working. I'm sure a lot of journalists who are, are, are working today would still have the same experience where a lot of your your time is taking up outside of uh, the normal, traditional, what we would see, working hours. But why did you think it was a good time now to revisit the journalist experience in Northern Ireland? Well, because, I mean, you know, so many journalists have passed through uh, through Belfast, through Belfast International Airport. You can imagine the numbers going back, right back to, you know, 1968, 69, right up until the present day. You know, you're talking many, many hundreds uh, a lot of journalists who came here, uh, who actually settled here, married, uh, and are continue to live here. Quite a few of them come over for you know for three month periods and went back to London or wherever. And you know there was just such a vast wealth of knowledge 
people who worked here, and we just thought, you know, it was a good time basically to try and bring some of them together. And um, we decided in 2016 we would approach uh, guys and girls who'd worked here from Dublin, uh, Belfast, and London. And uh, everybody was very good. Uh, you know, they thought it was a very good idea. We thought it was a good idea. We thought we'd try and get as many as possible and to keep the articles fairly short, no more than maybe 1,500 words, 2,000 words. And we had a, we have to say, we had a, we had a terrific lineup. And um, I'm glad to report that we have a similar lineup uh, for this book. Um, and uh, everybody was very willing, very cooperative, and we're happy to be associated with a, I think it's a fairly important and significant project. Yeah, um, and as you mentioned there, you've had no problem getting, you know, very significant tr- contributors to the book. And one mm-hmm. of those, a lot of them are household names. And one of those household names that many of our listeners would be familiar with is, is Charlie Bird, who also launched the book this week in Belfast. He has a very interesting story, doesn't he, describing his sort of full circle journey reporting on the Troubles. Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to Charlie, uh, obviously, w- well long before he ever became ill. And you know, again, was very enthusiastic. You know, Charlie writes. He writes a very powerful piece. Um, he's in the Garden of Remembrance in Dublin when the when Queen Elizabeth uh, laid a wreath there, and um, it wasn't very far. And he t- writes about this extensively. It wasn't very far from the spot where in 1994, uh, what 17 years or so previously, he had taken delivery of the first IRA ceasefire, and. Um, so he found it actually that day in the Garden of Remembrance quite emotional and um, and understandably so. And he's he's written a very powerful piece, and we're absolutely delighted it's in the book. And tell us about some of the other contributors who who were in this book. Well, I mean, we were determined to make sure we got a fair cross section uh, from the, you know from London, uh, from the the print media in London, from broadcasters. Um, Obviously, in Dublin, with uh, with a very, I think, a very strong lineup. Apart from Charlie Bird, you know, you have likes of Conor Brady, who's the former editor of the Irish Times. Paddy Clancy is a very well-known freelance. Niall Carson, press association photographer, who actually was shot in Belfast. Michael Denis from the Irish Independent. Russian Duffy from RTE. Mark Hennessy, who's still um, news editor in the in the Irish Times. Um, Paul Reynolds from RTE. And Johnny Watterson from the Irish Times. I mean, he's one of a number of sports journalists who've contributed to this book because we felt that, you know, we should maybe widen the brief. Uh, and uh, we've got sports journalists. We've got a Jim Gracie from the Belfast Telegraph writing about Linfield and playing Dundalk on, a, on, a, on an awful night uh, in Dundalk way back in the, uh, in the aftermath of Lord Mountbatten. We have uh, 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 Rod Nawn. Uh, from the BBC, writing about uh, a couple of Ulster players on their way down to Dublin to a, to an Ireland training session, uh, being injured in a bomb attack which killed a judge and his wife on their way back over the border uh, to Northern Ireland. So it's a fairly uh, good section. Fergal Keane, for instance, who's currently out in Ukraine, he's written for the book. Trevor MacDonald. From ITN has written for the book. Um, there's Good. a fair, fair, good selection. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to journalist Derek Henderson about his new book, Reporting on the Troubles. And your own contribution to the book, it centres around a very personal experience that you had um, with a girl called Leslie Gordon. 
Yeah, it was a story. It was just before I got married in 1978, and uh, uh, there was a young girl, 10 years of age, and her father, who were blown up uh, by an IRA undercar booby trap bomb in Mahara uh, in South Derry. And I remember being sent um, by the Belfast Telegraph. I was working for the Telegraph at the time up to Mahara to report uh, on the, the incident the following day. Um, I went to, to uh, the wee girl's school and um, wrote about uh, meeting her teachers and her classmates and so on. And it's a story that sort of stuck with me you know, um, ever since. Uh, I remember, I reminded, I'm reminded of it constantly, uh, and especially when up in that part of the world. And um, when I decided to write this piece, um, uh, I felt that she'd go back actually and find out. Well, who was uh, Leslie Gordon? You know, what sort of a girl was she? She was only ten years of age, and um, I went to see her mum in Mahara. Uh, Georgie, and uh, who very uh, kindly granted me an interview and was able to give me some uh, background material on this wee girl and who she was and, you know, why she was with her father and uh, they were heading off to school with her brother who survived the the attack. But it was a, it was just something that has always stuck in my mind that, you know, I always felt I should love to know a, a bit more about the young girl and gladly... Uh, her mother was able to share some thoughts with me and I'm, they're, they're in the book and I'm, I'm, and I'm glad for that. And very moving they are too. Um, I should say as well that the book is littered with lovely pieces of light as well. I'm thinking in particular of the, the piece that was penned by Roisin Duffy from RTE and her stories of, of growing up alongside the Hume family and witnessing the contribution of John Hume. Were you, um, were you struck by that piece? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Roshin's from Derry, as you know, was brought up not that far from John Hume. He was, he was, he was, uh, you know, he was lived in the Bogside for all his life, Westland Terrace, and you know, you know, that day in Greystale, um, mm. way back uh, in the days, uh, there was a terrible tragedy, Halloween. Um, gunmen who entered the uh, the Rising Sun Bar was at that shooting myself and um, uh, killed several people, both Protestants and Catholics. It was carried out by loyalist gunmen. And, uh, you know, the, the funerals that week were, were very harrowing. And, um, you know, Roshin remembers seeing him in the graveyard at Graysteel when one of the people had been buried. And, you know, he was he, he broke down. And this was at a time he was, in, he was under heavy criticism. He was under serious pressure, especially from people in Dublin, mm. or politicians in Dublin, for his... Peace talks with, uh, or peace negotiations, or call them whatever you like. And some newspapers with Adams at that time. So, some newspapers were also some newspapers. Him, yeah. yeah, well, the Independent group, uh, you know, they were especially some of the Independent were were very critical. Well, I'll say that some of them, some of the writers for that newspaper were very critical of him, and um, so that obviously had a huge impact on uh, on uh, on John Shum. But Russian um, Russian remembers it very well. Um, reading through some of the contributions, it's very obvious that the operating landscape has changed significantly for journalists, largely thanks to the, the evolution of technology and that sort of era we live in now of instant information. But for all of the, the pluses that brings, um, there may be something lost in terms of developing relationships. Um, do you think that that, that that might be the case? Um, I think it is to a degree. I mean, Mandy, the whole landscape has changed, you know, 
quite dramatically right across the whole journalistic sphere. And, you know, you're talking to somebody who's basically an old fart now. He's been <laughs> in the business over 50 years and he's seen it and done it and been there, got the T-shirt. But, you know, in my time, it was, and journalists of my generation probably had able to identify with us, you're only as good as the people you knew. You're only as good as the people that you had contact with. You're only as good as the, your black book, basically your contacts book was everything. And, you know, been able to have access to people's phones, uh, their direct line numbers. Because remember, back then there was no such thing as, as, as um, mobile phones. Take us through what <coughs> might have happened back then, who you would have contacted in a local area if an incident arose. Well, I mean, you know, there were... Well, if something happened, if something was a serious incident happened in a, in a town somewhere, you know, you lifted your phone and you rang the local shop or the local priest or the local clergyman or or, or whoever, uh, yeah, and you would basically work your way through the context book. And uh, if it was a, maybe a bad car accident in, in the middle of the country somewhere, you would you would have you know phoned the, the local co-op or the local school or whatever it is, and um, and that's the way you worked. Uh, I mean, you didn't have social media then. You didn't have the likes of you know Facebook and Twitter because you know nowadays it's it's you know you'll 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 hear about it on 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 social media, but you always have to remember that people who uh, who who contribute to social media and most journalists are all very um, uh, careful and responsible, but everything that's posted on social media carries a health warning, and you can never be sure that the information that appears on social media is accurate. So therefore, the tried and trusted methods of ringing people who were either near the scene of maybe that car accident or maybe who know the relatives of the people who were involved in that car accident um, uh, was so important and in my view still remains very important. Nowadays, there's a tendency uh, when something happens in a particular area, um, uh, people, some journalists would maybe refer to social media a lot to be to clean their information without getting it confirmed or stood up or whatever. And I just think social media also makes for lazy journalism. Mm. And I think that's a pity as well. Uh, um, and, do, and would you be concerned then, you know, with the attention to speed um, that there might be a quality issue in terms of reporting now? Well, I mean, you know, all journalists always try to get it right. Uh, and... Um, and mostly they do. They never get the full story. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You never ever get the full one hundred percent story on anything. You, 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 if you get seventy five percent of the truth, well, you're doing well. And and I think journalists, um, in my time, I think um, uh, would have been more would have would have been much more focused on actually making direct contact with people. Mm. Who were there? Who were there about her? Or maybe could maybe point you in, 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 in a certain direction. I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. Derek, you've obviously been um, looking at the situation in Northern Ireland for many years as an editor, as a journalist. Um, 
do you get any sense that the political leaders there are beginning to take the the peace in Northern Ireland for granted? I'm just thinking in particular of uh, one of the contributors to the book is, is Fergal Keane, who, as you mentioned earlier, is currently reporting from the Ukraine, like many of uh, Irish journalists at the moment. So is this a timely reminder to people that we shouldn't really take freedom and, pre- uh, and peace in Northern Ireland for granted? Well, I can understand people who maybe hold the view that we do take it for granted. I'm not so sure we do. Um, I mean, when we reported, you know, at the time, for me, probably the highlight of my whole career was 1998, Mm. at the time of the Great Friday Agreement. It was a fantastic time to be a reporter in Northern Ireland because there was so much positivity and so much really good news um, uh, about at that time. I mean, we're in a completely different place um, I mean, Belfast isn't the city it used to be. Not just Belfast, Derry is the same and, and all over Northern Ireland. We're in a completely different place, a much better place. But I have to say that it's, it's, it disappoints me and I think it's very sad that we should be in a much, 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 much better place and we're not there. And, you know, um, while I don't think people take uh, the peace process for granted mm. uh, we should also be in this book I think in many ways too serves as a reminder of what it was like back in the day I don't think we'll ever go back to what it was pre uh, even pre-98 um, I don't think we'll ever go back there I think I think that the the, 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 the people who, who are still involved in so-called republicanism and loyalism in terms of you know paramilitaries you know they've morphed into criminals now. I mean they're not they're not they're not paramilitaries as such. They're just gangster organisations who you know who thrive on 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 communities. I mean there isn't a town or city up here that you know that doesn't have criminal gangs roaming about preying on people. And uh, I just think that yes, it's a much better place. The quality of life is far far better than it was. But I just take the view that. For all sorts of reasons, we should be in a much, much better place and we're not there yet. Um, and as you've said to me in the past, I think the legacy of the Troubles is is still with us and, and may always be. But can I ask you, Derek, was there a standout piece for you in the book that, that struck you personally? Uh, yes, there is actually. And it's by um, Mark McFadden uh, from Ulster Television. I mean, Mark's a broadcaster. He's from Derry. And he's a really nice guy. And he got a couple of kids of his own, and he he recalls um, uh, the time of the Oma bombing in nineteen August nineteen ninety eight. Mm. In fact, that's my hometown, and he's in Bunkrana uh, in Donegal, uh, just across the border, not very far from his home. And you know, he's been on the road for for a couple of days, and he's 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 absolutely you can, you can imagine he's exhausted. And he writes about you know this this this. <laughs> Uh, the hearses bringing the bodies yeah. home of, of five of the victims, you know the 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 headlights and the darkness, mm. you know, and the silence, and you know, and he writes, he says, you know, that silence left its mark on me. The following night, when I had finally returned home after days on the road, I stood in my children's bedroom. They were tiny, innocent children, just like the children who had died in Oma, and as they stood by their beds and listened to their peaceful and regular breathing. I kissed them and offered them a silent prayer. Now, that's Mark McFadden. 
And for me, that's probably the standout piece in this book. An absolutely stunning piece uh, of writing about that whole period. It's very clear, Derek, that you and Ivan are very passionately committed to the craft of journalism. Um, so where can you buy the book? Uh, how much does it cost? Well, it was launched in Belfast uh, on Thursday night. Uh, it's um, published by Blackstaff Press, um, uh, a very good publishing company uh, uh, in Belfast. It's available online, uh, Amazon, all good shops uh, all over Ireland, um, uh, Belfast and Dublin. It certainly is a must read for anybody interested in Northern Ireland, interested in politics and interested in really good journalism. Uh, Derek, thanks very much for taking the time with us today. That's Derek Henderson, journalist, former editor of the Press Association and co-author of Reporting the Troubles too. Derek, thank you for joining us today. Not at all, Mandy. Vaut Arash go news talk show Mandy Johnston now on the 18th of March to honour 20 years of the Other Voices Music Festival. BBC Four are going to broadcast a 60-minute special film celebrating the history and the foundations of perhaps Ireland's most internationally acclaimed music festival. Now I'm joined by Philip King, who's the co-creator of Other Voices Festival. Philip, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us. A delight, Mandy. Lovely to speak with you. Now, Philip, it's been 20 years of the Other Voices Festival and Ondangan has welcomed a host of international artists. It's an incredible achievement. Can you take us back to how it all got started? Well, I'm living about eight miles west of the town of Dingle and we moved here over 20 years ago. And when we came here, we realised that it might be possible to invite some folks and some musicians that we'd known throughout our lives and throughout, throughout my own musical expedition um, to come maybe and play a tune or two. And there's a beautiful little church on the main street in Dingle and it's called the Church of St. James, an old church of Ireland that has music in its walls. And then of course the place itself is a very, very rich cultural place. The language is still extant and powerful. There is a great musical tradition in the place and it's a very attractive place to visit because of its sheer physical beauty. All of those elements came together and we made a phone call to RTE 20 years ago and wondered if they might be interested, interested in such a venture and Glenn Hansard was involved and was the first presenter and motivator really for, for the thing. One thing led to another RTE found a very small amount of money down the side of the couch that they had to spend before the end of the year. And here we are 20 years later, the thing having grown and developed, but its core mission, if you like, is still the same. And that is to offer a platform to a range of artists to go and do their thing and to speak to the world and to give them, I suppose, the, the encouragement and the motivation to do so and to do it with the best production values in the world and that's very important and the result of that has been to make this place this Gwaltacht area of West Kerry audible and visible across the world with some of the world's greatest and biggest artists now coming here and in the film that will be transmitted on the BBC on March 18th on BBC 4 at uh, 10 o'clock Dermot Kennedy tells the story that he arrived here five years ago and he played in Kennedy's bar at the top of the town and there was his mother, his father and two other people in the room. Right? Yeah. And he, he has now, of course, become Ireland's hottest musical 
star on the world stage. And it's that trajectory and that magic that happens here. And he keeps coming back, says he loves the place, has been inspired and informed by it and motivated to keep on keeping on with his musical career. And you mentioned uh, there that it has provided a platform and indeed it has provided a very successful platform for, for many artists in the early part of their careers. You've had some amazing people pass through there. Could you just take our listeners through some of uh, the artists who have gone to the Other Voices Festival? Well, I mean, you know, I guess many people talk about Amy Winehouse. The London Times called the Amy Winehouse performance here one of the top 10 gigs of all time. It was a 40 minute performance with a two piece band and this remarkable singer with her little beehive hairdo falling over, singing a song, singing songs and inhabiting songs like nobody I have ever heard before. Yeah, it, it's a, um, actually, I'm I'm a massive Amy Winehouse fan myself. I've watched it several times over. It's a very iconic um, performance by her. But actually, I read a very interesting interview by her. She was not only struck by that experience in the St. James's Church, she was also uh-huh. struck by the environment uh, in Dingle and even her journey from Dublin to there caused caused some emotion. Her, why do you think so many artists are struck by what's around them in Dingle and not just the performing part of? I think their I think artists are sensitive people, and by and by that I mean that they sense something in the place. Um, they sense that it's a safe place for them to raise their voices to sing. They sense that they are cherished. Um, you know, the people who play music in West Kerry. Um, their job is to put the rhythm under the dancer's foot and they are part and parcel of the community and the singers and the players are valued as, you know, as as people who make a real contribution. And that contribution is even more important now than ever it was as, as as, as I would say, like we we're digitally lonely right now. We're, we're a little bit, I suppose, isolated right now and post COVID certainly. And I mean, I think what the music does is that it's it's a human thing. It's it pulls us together. It collapses distance and brings us into physical space together. And people really cherish that. And the musicians that come here and keep coming back here, like Sigrid and Sam Fender and you know Villagers and John Grant and so many more, you know, are 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 drawn to the place. They fall in love with the place and they always want to come back. And, you know, I would say that, you know, culture remains a strong and welcoming link for for people. And it reaches out across the world as well. And as I said a little while ago, it makes us audible and visible on a world stage. And I think there's something very important about that right now. The other thing I'd say, Mandy, is that this going to the BBC at this time, on the 18th of March, 2022. Um, I remember curating a very significant event on the 10th of April um, 2014 when our president Michael D. Higgins visited um, the Queen, the first visit, official visit of a serving Irish head of state to the the Queen and we had a night in the Albert Hall. That was when Anglo-Irish relations and relationships east-west were strong and good. And I would say that, you know, eight, nine, ten years later, um, we're looking at that relationship under some strain. And I think that what the music does and what our shared musical culture does is 
that it serves to bring us that little bit more together and to ameliorate some of the difficulties that are inherent in the East-West relationship post-Brexit. So going to the BBC at this time um, is, I think, very significant, very significant for our programme, but also very significant that we will find someplace from the edge of Europe celebrated and that Irish-English relationship, and there are a number of English artists here, and of course the whole thing is presented by Annie McManus, who is from Dublin, um, sort of developed her career in Belfast and has been, you know, a hugely popular, iconic figure on BBC Radio for the last 10 years. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and we're talking to Philip King about the Other Voices Music Festival in Dingle. Yeah, having it on on BBC4 will also perhaps bring it to an entirely new and different audience who may not be aware of it, um, which sure. which which can't do anything to help to, to hinder your your the commercial aspect. How have you found that over the years? You mentioned it started off with money from the back of the couch that RTE found. As the music festival and everything around it has become more successful, has it been more challenging to get artists or does it cost more? I mean, it certainly costs more to realise because the, product, the production values are a, a, a sine qua non for us. Mm. If we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And artists of this stature don't come unless from a sound point of view, from a technical point of view, and from a production point of view, the values are not correct. I mean, it's been a topsy-turvy 20 years for all of us, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if we were to say this, uh, Mandy, that what the 20 years of Other Voices has done is captured the soundtrack of Ireland in a state of flux and change buffeted by international um, developments and the ups and downs of the economy, the Brexit piece and so much more. But it's an emotional response, really. I think it was Frank Hart, the great song collector in Dublin, um, who said once that if you want to know the facts, consult the history book. If you want to know what it felt like, ask a singer. So I think that the soundtrack that we've created over 20 years is a very eloquent emotional response to what has happened to Ireland um, over that 20 years. It's sometime, we were very near you know, falling off the edge a couple of times, I have to say. It was very, very difficult, particularly around you know, the 10th, 11th, 12th, iteration of this thing, but we managed to survive um, through the kindness of strangers and others who who helped us to maintain the peace. We have a strong relationship with uh, the Department of Arts, um, Tourism and Media and Gwaeltacht um, in Kildare Street. And, you know, we have a strong relationship with the industry itself. So all of those elements coming together are very, very important. It is not a commercial festival. We don't sell tickets for it. Um, it is, um, it, it tries to maintain um, the integrity of a deep and strong relationship with the artistic community. There's one other thing I think that runs in parallel with it. Um, and it is that I, I think that what the thing does is it sends a message out of Ireland that this is a creative place. And I think that that is very important. I think at a policy and strategy level, the state has really begun to understand that where culture goes, commerce follows. And I think that's another layer, if you like, to what the Other Voices piece represents. And Philip, Other Voices has truly transformed over the years um, into something that's much more than 
a series of concerts. It's a fully fledged winter festival now. Uh, had you yes. any inclination that it would evolve this way? Um, I didn't really, Mandy. Um, um, I think it was Fionn McCool who was supposed to have said that the best music is the music of what happens. Um, something, it, it, it just evolved. And little by little, more and more artists wanted to come. So when Guy Garvey and Elbow came here first, you know, Guy went home and he said, God, this is the, this is the most fantastic place yeah. ever. And then he spoke to Jarvis Cocker and said, Jarvis, have you done that dingle thing yet? Yeah, you know? that, that's often and, what happens, isn't it? One artist has a successful and, and great experience and, and it leads on to somebody else. And that's probably part of the success. It's that word, word it's of mouth. Word, yeah. It's the, the word, word of mouth. mouth indeed. Yeah. Well, look, Philip, um, best of luck with um, your festival for this year. And we'll look out for the BBC4 documentary when it's on on the 18th of March. Uh, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. I look forward to, to getting down to the festival someday. Maybe we'll have a, a, an OB from... Um, other voices but for now that's Philip yep. King organiser of the Other Voices Winter Festival in Kerry Well Sinead that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and I hope that you found our topics of interest and we love hearing from you about what you would like to hear covered so please feel free to get in contact with us on takingstock at newstalk.com and while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the Newstalk app. My thanks to today's guests and to producer Simon Keane and Jojo Cardoso who was on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day. Sláin agus bánacht.